everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined again by Benjamin Williams, Dr. Benjamin Williams, Reverend Dr. Benjamin Williams. <laughs> and we are going to continue our discussion that we started a few weeks ago, Stephen Meyer's book, Return of the God Hypothesis. Now, Ben, you don't need to show your cards here. Uh, but I'll go ahead and say when we recorded our first podcast, I was not completely done with the book. And that's, you know, one of the reasons that we didn't discuss anything about the uh, past about the first 200 pages of the book. But I've been very impressed as I finished this book with the comprehensive treatment that he gives. And that's what we're really going to get into today. Yeah, I was going back and reviewing some of it today. Um, and I was just looking using Google to go out and and find a couple of statistics that I couldn't remember, only to realize they were all in one place in this book. Uh, that he had just really done his homework well. Uh, if you're looking for a lot of information in one place, this is a, a gold mine. So last time we talked a little bit about setting the stage for apologetics. We covered a little bit about what's going on in the world of apologetics right now, answering questions of why all of a sudden have the new atheists all but disappeared. Uh, the the conversation has shifted a little bit. And one of the things that we pointed to was you just have so much better engagement now than you did even 10 years ago. And uh, one of the things that Meyer's book really kind of surprised me with was just the level of sophistication in the history and the development of these arguments that runs through the book. And so the first about 200 pages of the book are a development of certain pieces of this scientific picture about what we know about the universe, some of which has made it into the popular consciousness, some of it has not made it into the popular consciousness. Uh, but after he essentially goes through the last 200 years of scientific development around things like the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the design of life, he turns his focus to making what is the central argument of the book, which is the God hypothesis, and even more specifically than that, the hypothesis that there is a creator God who is involved in the universe, similar to the Christian creator, is the most likely explanation for the scientific data that we find ourselves with. That's a pretty audacious claim to make. Uh, yeah, it is. Um especially since on the propaganda level, science has, uh, big science with like a capital S, uh, has worked really hard for the last century or two to make that a, a non-starter, a, a non-scientific option. Um, uh, the, the catch is by asking scientific questions, you end up back at the same point again and again and again Um if you don't want to call it science, that's fine. We can call it schmience or something else, but it's it's what we arrived at by science. So what what do you want to call this series of open-ended problems that science has a very limited array of options to answer? Uh, specifically, yeah. he brings up three that I'm sure we want to talk about today. The, the cosmological evidence for some kind of beginning. The uh, finely tuned state of the universe as we know it, and then the problem of information in biological life and the development of biological life, all very like niche specific areas of science that are clearly science. Uh, and yet the further you dig into them, 
<laughs> the further you dig into them, the more you see that there, there are limited options for what to do with that. Yeah, so to set up a little bit of what's going on in this argument, here's basically what he's saying. And, and I thought this was interesting. He, he essentially takes a line out of Richard Dawkins' uh, book, and he says, so, so Dawkins says, science has proven X, Y, and Z, things like the universe has a beginning. Things like the laws of physics, things like, uh, you know, in Dawkins' estimation, the origin and descent of the species. If those things are true, they operate in a framework of assumptions. So assumptions about what may have produced such a universe as these things exist, and then things, too, that underlie why we, in fact, can do science. Th those things yeah. are actually what we might consider meta science. They are above and beyond scientific questions. But <clears throat> Dawkins' point is taking those assumptions into account, i.e., a naturalistic universe, there is nothing beyond matter, there is nothing beyond the material that we can observe, there's nothing beyond the scientific method. We see a universe that fits with those assumptions. So uh, when we test things, when we hypothesize, when we look at data, it fits with a universe that there's nothing beyond the data itself. That's that's Richard Dawkins' essential argument. Stephen Meyer is going to flip that argument around and say, actually, given what we can establish through science, it is indicative of what you would expect to find if, in fact, you had a very different set of assumptions, like there was a creator, there is a God who is involved in the universe, uh, we are designed in such a way that we are supposed to seek truth in the universe, and that's why we're able to even do science. So he enters into a little bit of a contest. What set of assumptions undergirding and, and surrounding the science that we currently have make the most sense of the science that we have? And to do that, he does. He, he says he's going to do what's called abductive logic. Now, just in case anybody's eyes just roll back in their head uh, when we use a term like abductive logic, it's it's less scary than it sounds. Abductive logic is similar to inductive or deductive logic in the sense that you're essentially talking about how the premises of an argument relate to its conclusion. But the difference between abduction is abductive arguments are what we might call probabilistic arguments. So the most likely conclusion would be this, as opposed to if the premises are true and the argument is sound, then the conclusion follows from the premises. An abductive argument, and he gives a great example of this in the book, an abductive argument is like I come upon a cabin in the woods and it's looking pretty run down. It, there's nothing that would give me any sense that there's anyone there. At that point in time, abductive logic would lead me to say it's most likely it's an abandoned cabin. Now, we don't know that to be true. It's not a necessary truth from the premises that we have that that's true, but it's the best explanation for the data that we do have. Now, I walk up to the cabin and I peer through the window and I see that there is a steaming hot cup of tea on the kitchen table. All of a sudden, the best explanation of the evidence has changed. Now, the best explanation of the evidence is it is inhabited. Because somebody just made that cup of tea. And what abduction allows you to do is when you receive a new piece of information into the puzzle, now you can see the final picture a little bit clearer. In fact, probably most people's uh, easiest connection with abductive logic is Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes yeah. is an abductive reasoner. You get the clues 
And every time you get a new clue, you reassess what the most likely conclusion from your evidence is. And at the end, you say the most likely the most likely explanation for all of these clues is this person did it. And then he's able to trace back how he made that uh, logical leap from clue to clue to clue to get to his conclusion. Meyer is saying, let's do that kind of reasoning. Let's not say here we have a definitive proof that if you take these premises, the conclusion is God exists. Let's just say, given what we do have scientifically, what's the most likely explanation? And he's going to go through and argue by the end, far and away, the most likely conclusion is there is a God who designed the universe, who is involved in it, who has made us to be able to do science and observe the world around us. It, it is like the most human form of reasoning. I mean, as much as guys like you and I and enjoy uh, reading Alvin Plantinga and, and reading somebody use deductive logic to go from A to Z to infinity and get where they want to go. Most of the time, we don't do that. And in ordinary human interactions, it is more probabilistic. And we're comfortable with that. It's the way we do everything. It's it's successful um, and and usually very reliable. It doesn't mean that it's infallible. It's just reliable. So I think, yeah, to Meyer's point, if we trust that way of thinking in every other area, but not here, uh, it demonstrates a prejudice against the conclusion, not against the method. Uh, we, we just don't like where it led us. So a lot of times you'll hear the language switch where the discussion will be about probability. And then someone will say, well, you can't know that. I mean, it could be possible. And it switches back to deductive what's possible rather than what's likely, mm -hmm. uh, because that's a great fallback place to go to when you feel like you've been cornered probabilistically. Right. Yes. And that that probabilistically is the important thing is the, the style of argument. And I'm not ruling out that there are other kinds and he wouldn't either. But the style of argument he's making is what do you think is most likely here? In fact, right before he embarks in these chapters, he, here's what he says he's doing. Uh, he says, instead, in the spirit of, in, of inquiry that Dawkins has advanced, this is so cheeky, I can only imagine Dawkins reading this, <laughs> he probably wouldn't, but um, I will evaluate whether the, the discoveries of cosmology, physics, and biology discussed in the preceding chapters, that's the history section, might provide a good reason for believing in God, and an even better reason for believing in God than in naturalism or materialism, for example. So again, the, the style of argument is if you look at the deliverances of science, the most likely conclusion is they would lead you to believe in God. That's that's the argument he's making. So he does that in three different areas. And I, I want to kick it over to you to explain to us some of the argument he's making here. The, the first one is the God hypothesis in the beginning of the universe. And one of the surprising parts of this book that I keep coming back to is how important the beginning of the universe is for a creationist and intelligent design worldview. We, I think probably you feel the same way about this. Before I read this book, I always thought that the atheists had the upper ground with the big bang. Like the big bang was, you know, some great deliverance of the atheists and atheist scientists. Reading this book, you get the sense that the fact that there was a Big Bang, the fact that there was a beginning of the universe is a huge argument in favor of creationism rather than vice versa. Yeah. Uh, on the popular level, Christians kind of played into this hand somewhere. And I, I would love to go back and really dig into the history of how we got to this point. 
uh, whether it's like the the scope the scopes monkey trial or is it uh, some other like moment in popular culture that shifts this where the debate became specifically do we believe in darwinian evolution and how old is the universe rather than the other question that kind of out of nowhere suddenly everyone agreed on because they hadn't before this as i think we talked about in the last podcast from from Aristotle all the way through to the uh, early 1900s, the overwhelming conclusion of everybody other than Genesis was <laughs> that the universe had always been here in some format. Um, because the logical problem was so brutally apparent uh, intuitively we are people who seek causes and sequences of causes. And so when you look back and you want to know what caused that first thing, um, Aristotle was bothered by it. Aquinas was bothered by it. All the other guys are bothered by it. Uh, right up through to Einstein's bothered by it. That it, it's just easier logically on an intuitive level to say, I, I don't have to answer that question. It simply goes back to past infinity, whatever that may mean. Um, there were some guys at MIT for a while in that same period of the early 1900s trying to work on like cyclical systems where if you had a universe that just went around in a wheel, you know, they, they were interested in Buddhism, I think, just like it just went around in a wheel, around and around and around. Maybe you could get away from the the source or cause problem. But then they had to figure out where the wheel came from. And, and either it's past eternal uh, or it had a beginning. And so what Lemaitre and, and then eventually the rest of all of science gets on board with is, yeah, it does in fact look like there's a beginning. And that is a scientific problem with, depending on how we define these words, Cole, a non-scientific solution uh, mm -hmm. and in the sense of I, I'm not going to get, let me try it differently. It's a naturalistic problem with a non-naturalistic solution. Right, can't just add another naturalist cause. Uh, I have to have something that defies that system uh, of uh, everything natural is rooted in the idea of cause and effect. The only way to escape that logical problem is to have something that is not that. Um, that's really what we're saying when we talk about a supernatural cause or a divine cause or a personal agent or actor is we're saying something other than mechanistic succession of cause and effect in human experience. The, we don't, we don't know how to explain it, but the only example of that is this thing we like to call free will. And, and we're not even sure exactly what that is to be perfectly honest. Theologians argue about it as much as scientists, but in the interactions of human, if something happens without an obvious natural preceding cause, we say some person did that. It has a personal cause. Otherwise, um, you know, here a minute ago, all the lights in this room were off. Now they're all on. Mm -hmm. There's no naturally occurring mechanism that flipped those switches. There was a personal intervention that caused a change of state. That happens in human life all the time, 
and then you, you get into like brain chemistry and is it really free will or whatever but mm-hmm. that's the closest thing to a metaphor for what we're talking about that we can find the only other kind of causes we know about besides natural ones are personal ones and so if you take natural causes back to their furthest extent and say they can't go on past infinity which is what the physics demands and everyone theist atheist don't careist everybody is in agreement that's the conclusion and i've ruled out natural causes i'm i'm stuck with personal causes it's the only other kind of causes we know right it doesn't mean we understand them right it, it means it's the only other kind we're familiar with mm-hmm. so I, I would be happy if you want i love the book's called the god hypothesis that leaves open if you can come up with hypothesis c you know it's not door number door number 1 it's not door number 2 okay give me door number 3 but right now we have two kinds of causes of which we're familiar and we're saying we all agree it's not one of them. Right. Let me talk about the second is all we're asking. Yeah. And this is where the alternatives begin to look pretty silly. And this this is why I think his argument is really good because it's one thing to say, do you believe that there's a God that created this universe And in abstraction, people are fine saying, well, no, or sure. But the the question isn't, do you believe in a God that created the universe? The question is, among these possible alternatives, which one seems the most likely to you? And, And that's where the alternatives, especially for the origins of life, get very silly. This this is not a God or take your pick of anything else. It's God versus a very few other set, very small other set of explanations that have major drawbacks. So, for example, some people thought for a long time you maybe have this oscillating universe that would expand and then collapse and expand and then collapse. Okay, the the just the calculations on the energy of that universe and how long that could happen for are so they so fall short of what you would need for a perpetual oscillation in the universe that it's just mathematically silly to propose that. Um, Did you have, you know, kind of this preexistent information that somehow some way was able to translate into matter blowing up into a big bang? Well, well, that, that just punts the question one step back. Okay. Uh, Where did that come from? Where's the cause of this information? You know, the whole was life seeded, you know, by another life form is the same thing. Then what explains that life form? Uh, it's, it's funny God the versus joke, those things. Yeah. The, the, the joke that used to always be directed at religious people was, you know, the, the earth sits on an elephant that sits on a turtle and then it's turtles all the way down. And, and we were told that's what we believed. And now the science is starting to sound like this. The the universe comes from a multiverse that comes from a multi-multi-universe, which comes from Marvel. I don't know. Like, yeah. we just keep moving the, <laughs> the problem back a step. And only the, the theist has ever dared to say there is something or someone that does not work like that. And... And, and, and even from the philosophical point of view, Cole, we could take the theology out of it, which you and I are deeply committed to. But just from the philosophical point of view, if you don't want to call it God, a non-natural, quasi-personal cause <laughs> is is all you're left with. Um, so now let's come up with a name for that. And it turns out Christians have a pretty good one. But there's something that doesn't fit the other categories is all you're left with. Everything Absolutely. else is just a retread 
of the current problem that's pushing it back another step. Yeah, because this this initial question that he takes on of what about the origin of the universe, what what, what caused the universe, provides a boundary for what science and materialism can talk about. Beyond that, they really have nothing meaningful to say, and so your options become very limited. Uh, and you know the way he concludes this chapter is there's a strong epistemic support for the answer of this question in theism. The scientific evidence and the theoretical developments pointing to the beginning of the universe have helped to revive the God hypothesis because among the options, it seems like the most likely explanation. Again, that abductive reasoning, what is the best explanation of what we have? And again, what you were pointing to, we have a consensus that there was a beginning in the universe. So what explains that? Well, yeah. Among the options, God. So that again, that's the style he's working with here. It's not it's not a deductive argument. Uh, it, it's right. that what given the options, which one fits the data the best, the God hypothesis. Um, uh, the second you know, one, when Craig advances that Kalam cosmological argument, which which is a deductive argument. Mm -hmm. but this is the way it has to be. This is a different approach to the same set of questions. Of just saying, okay, let's throw all the options on the table and which one makes the most sense. We're not even saying right. your option is impossible. We're saying, does it make any kind of sense? Right. Yeah. And I think that's 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 one of the things I really want to get across to people who are listening is there's a lot of different ways to argue apologetically. There's a lot of different styles of argument. This just happens to be the one he's using. And I think he does it in a really good way. Yeah. So the second question is, Okay, if we've got the origins of the universe, let's now get into the nature of the universe itself, and let's talk about the way the universe is designed. Th this chapter, among the others, is probably the most similar to classic apologetic arguments. Th this really is close to the fine-tuning argument, but again, in the style of not if you have fine-tuning, then there must be a God. Given the fine-tuning that we all agree on, what's the most likely way that this could have been set up? by a creator. That's the argument he's running. Yeah. I, I think the point that people don't maybe get um, is how many ways there are to make a bad universe. Uh, <laughs> there's just like a very narrow set of options. Um, when I'm explaining fine tuning, uh, I start with just the idea of uniformity of pieces. Uh, so I'm about to build a deck in my backyard um, and there's going to be some lumber de delivered to my house at some point in the near future. If I go in my backyard and there are just like random limbs out there, I assume they fell off a tree. If I see 10 two by eights cut at 10 foot length, I don't assume they fell off a tree. I assume that their uniformity demonstrates some other source than randomness. And then if I see a lumber yard worth of timber, I'm pretty well certain like that that didn't fall off a tree. So when you look at the universe, there is a staggering amount of uniformity in the pieces, which itself is kind of unusual. Um, why are electrons? Why, why is there such a thing as an electron? Why isn't every single particle different from every other particle? Instead, in particle physics, you have the select array of these are the things you can have. If you're an electron, you weigh exactly this much and have exactly this much energy, and these are the rules, and everyone in the known universe, if the physics works, uh, is exactly like that. Well, that's kind of odd. So just the uniformity is its own thing. But then 
not just uniform, but the question of what would happen if we tinkered with those values even a little bit. And and I just want to say this is this is not just a question that theists are curious about. Uh, I can take you back to the early 2000s when a, a young Ben Williams with us at the University of Oklahoma doing physics and astronomy. And I remember one occasion, this was a physics one class, where we had to calculate um, the difference between the electrostatic force and the gravitational force in, in terms of holding uh, an atom together and how vastly different they are and how exactly balanced they are. Uh, with the other forces to make an atom work. Um, and then I remember uh, a special presentation we sat through where a student was given the prompt. He was supposed to research what happens if you change the gravitational constant, constant big G. And uh, his friend of mine named Ryan did this presentation and, and he goes through it and he says, I don't even know how to talk about this. This is insane. If you change this value at all, the universe comes apart. Um, and you're waiting for the professor in the corner to say, yes, but here's the solution. And there is none out of a, let's say, I know the phrase near infinite means nothing, but in, out of a near infinite possible values of big G, this exact one, and even if you research this a little bit at the popular level, it'll use words like slightly. Uh, if you slightly change the gravitational constant, that is a stupid understatement. I don't even know how to convey the size of the understatement that we're talking about one part in 10 to the 58, 59, 60th power. Um, that is insanely precise. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's only 10 to the 80th particles in the universe. Um, 10 to the 60th, I think that the metaphor I try to use, and I've seen this in some uh, apologetics videos too, which are pretty good. Um, if you have a dial and it's subdivided into 10, like one through 10, um, you can set it to, it's like a volume knob. You can set it to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. That's one in 10 level of accuracy. If you subdivide one of those units into 10 more dashes, okay, that's now you're talking about one in 10 to the second power level of specificity. Okay. We're talking about doing that on the same dial 60 more times. And it has to be set on that number to say it's set on a knife edge. I mean, we wish it were a knife edge. That would be great. Right. This, this is absurd. And then there's a whole bank of dials, all of which have that level of specificity and if any of them are moved in that degree, not only is there no, it's not like America doesn't happen, humanity doesn't happen, complex chemistry doesn't happen. You don't have anything larger than carbon. Sometimes you don't even have carbon. Uh, atoms don't work. Molecules don't work. Particles don't work. Reality, as we know, it doesn't work. Um, the Big Bang is a very sophisticated model. Okay. I mean, there's a reason we didn't come up with it until when we did. It is the era of Einstein. It's a very sophisticated model. And the specific ratio, uh, the entropy settings of the early universe has to be, I think I read Cole that it's 10 to the 10th to the 120th degree, uh, like one in that many parts. It has to be set to that ratio. 
Um, Cole, you're the math guy. I, I'm saying if you asked me to explain that number to someone, I couldn't even get started. That's There is no physical analogy that the human brain can understand to represent that value. And that's what it had to be for the Big Bang to work. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, so you what, get into these big. What Myers is trying to say: Can we at least consider that maybe somebody picked that number? Yeah. Instead of that's just the way it shook out. Yeah, because you get into these big numbers, and it's it's kind of the dumb and dumber phenomenon of so you're saying there's a chance that it could have happened. There's a chance, but, right? Yeah. And uh, you know that's that's what some of these guys will just stomach and say, well, you know, yeah, that's what happened in a multiverse of multiverses infinite number of universes you have a guaranteed probability that this will happen and it's like okay that's first of all that's not the way the probability works um secondly <laughs> the the numbers here are so astronomically small uh that it, it's almost silly to even try to express them uh, in odds i mean it's 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 a creative way of saying there's no way I mean, because pretty quickly, like you said, you get to the point of if you picked a particle out of the entire universe, it's you still would have better odds than this happening. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's beyond what our ability is to to even grasp. And so when you look at that, the question isn't, OK, does that demand that there was the Christian God that created the universe? In fact, the question that Meyer is posing is a little bit more clever. The question is, given those kinds of astronomical odds. Which of these two alternatives makes more sense? Somebody okay. picked those numbers, or in some convoluted way, we just happened to have hit the lottery a million times over, and those, uh, through unintelligent forces, those constants just happened to line up, and here we are. Kind of a de facto, we are here, therefore they must have just randomly come to a place where it could create life. Given those two alternatives, which is more likely? And at that point, again, you have to come back to, okay, well, if those are the two options, then one sounds a lot more likely than the other. Yeah. We're, we're really asking, this is a battle about rationality. Are we really willing to accept the power and success of human rationality? The thing that powers science is the ability of the human mind to build analogies and to say, between these options, it seems like this is analogous to that. This is analogous to this over here. This one's more likely. We tell little stories in our head. We build little pictures and we say, this works. It's how we do every murder trial, every jury, uh, every scientific development. The things we are the most proud about as humans have arrived through this process of rationality. And then we get to this most important of questions and you say, well, you just can't think like that. Mm -hmm. Meyer says, yeah, we probably should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I thought that this this uh take on kind of a cosmological art fine-tuning argument was really insightful. He you know, you can get as specific as you want in the book on the certain constants that he's using, the kinds of reasoning. But what I thought was interesting about this one is he's going through in these chapters and he's basically saying, let's take four, maybe five different explanations, materialism, pantheism, theism, deism. And then all of a sudden he introduces in this cha chapter what's called panspermia, which mm -hmm. is aliens came 
and planted life. And that doesn't really sound like a sophisticated scientific answer, but there are otherwise scientifically sophisticated people making this argument. I think Sir Fred Hoyle went to his grave with that as his de facto explanation because he just couldn't buy the Big Bang, oddly enough. Like he said, the Big Bang, I just can't buy it. It sounds too much like Genesis, but panspermia was something he was he was okay with that. Mm-hmm. So you, you start to see that there's there's not that many reasonable options. And when you narrow it down, it makes it makes it much easier to say, you know what, I'm pretty convinced that reasoning like this, the most likely explanation is creationism. Now, the last chapter is if we move from the origin of the universe to the design of the universe. Now we start talking about the design of life. I thought this was probably the most complicated argument that he makes in terms of the actual science, which we've been trying to do a little bit of a flyover on some of this. But let me explain where he's going in this design of life. So life requires a certain amount of information. And don't think information just in terms of knowing something. Think information as in code, uh, DNA code. So certain parts of DNA have to match to others. That has to be transmitted from one source to another. And that's called information. That's information transfer. Every time there's new life, there is information transfer. And how reliably that information is transferred is how complicated the life can be. And so, as you can see, from the beginning of the universe until now, things have gotten more and more complex. Therefore, there has been more and more information that has been transferred. And one of the arguments is, how do we know that that information can even be reliably transferred? And then secondly, where does the information come from? Um, And so what he's talking about in this design of life is when a human is born, for example, they get information from their parents that tells the cells how to replicate themselves, how to grow, how to uh, go through the course of life. And that information did not exist. That specific information did not exist before human life, but now it does. So what is there to explain the advent of new reliable information that is on a scale of complexity, again, that is just hard to wrap your mind around. Could natural forces, aimless forces have done that? Or is it God who is guiding and introducing new information into that process? I love this approach to it because, uh, as you know, I get background in science, but not in the life sciences for me. So when you start talking about biology, I, I my eyes do glass over a little bit. But when you talk about in terms of data, then I I can kind of start to get my head around that. And especially in the information age and the computer age, we were getting a sense of how really complicated it is to transmit data. As a general rule, data or information degrades. I mean, it it is more likely to fall apart than to come together. Uh, So again, if if you show me... um, the binary code for a Windows operating system, it's way more likely that that was engineered into that state than that someone just kind of kept throwing zeros and ones at the screen until Windows 11 popped out. It doesn't make sense. Uh, again, the, the intuitive conclusion is that that's not how data works. And even setting aside the, the grandeur of the cosmos and even setting aside all the physical forces 
just one human being existing <laughs> is this staggering, staggering truth. There's a great line in uh, a Eugene Peterson book where you know, he's not an apologist, he's, he's a mystic, but he has this line where he talks about, there is more wonder and awe in the most pathetic human life than you could ever grasp. Mm. And when you read this, you know, yeah, actually, we could do the math, and it's really there, and it's staggering. Um, that that was helpful to me as a non-biologist to think about it in terms of data. I remember once upon a time, I was trying to calculate the odds of randomly assembling a small amount of the data in a strand of DNA. Um, and it actually locked up my little Casio scientific calculator. I, <laughs> the number was too big. <laughs> and so I had to start doing workarounds. Uh, and that was just over like a strand of DNA, mm -hmm. trying to pull it out piece at a time out of a, a bag of letters or something. You know, it, it, it's, it's silly. And, and that it's going upwards in trajectory rather than downward. The, the more evolution is true, the more troubling that is. Mm-hmm. Like, a, oddly enough, young earth creationism doesn't quite have that big a problem. Uh, you don't have to maintain the information quite as long. The longer you have to maintain that system and make marginal improvements over successive generations, uh, that's just, it's not how information works. And we know that now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is interesting because if if you followed this topic, one of the one of the arguments that was kind of a breakthrough in these apologetic books that were being written was Michael Behe's argument on irreducible complexity. Now, in in Darwin's black box, he's arguing for a biological, almost structural irreducible complexity. So you have these flagella that are like little motors that can't work if one of the pieces is gone. So the argument essentially is you could not have evolved to something that complex because without, you know, anywhere in the intermediate process, the thing couldn't work. It had to come that way to be able to work. The laws of, uh, the, basically the laws of survival of the fittest cannot produce something with that complexity because there's no intermediate step that makes sense. This argument that that Stephen Meyer is making is the same argument in a different set of data. Instead of being physical, biological, now we've got informational data. And uh, so to get specific, one of the things he points out is the biologically relevant chemical subunits of DNA. That's kind of what you're talking about when you start to even try to figure out the sequencing on one part of DNA. The, those subunits themselves do not contain the information necessary to produce the specified information that DNA contains. So it would almost be like if you have a computer that needs to transmit certain information over a network to another computer, those computers are going to be able to recognize each other, but they won't be able to set up the connection for them to connect to each other. You actually have to have outside information that sets up the connection so that then they can talk to each other with the corresponding data. And that's the argument he's making is if you take out one of those steps, there's not enough information in the DNA itself to connect it. Uh, and then in the connective part, there's not the internal information you need for the DNA once it is connected to talk to another piece. So this whole process has to function as a whole or it can't function at all. Yeah. 
uh, I think, yeah, I think you make your, your comparison and contrast with Behe and Meyer's argument is really good. That it's it's kind of like hardware and software. I, I have uh, a laptop in front of me, and Behe's argument is okay. There's lots of little tiny pieces that make that work, and all of them have to work in unison correctly. Uh, so there's not a process from which a laptop can arise. It has to just be all assembled at once to do the job. If any part doesn't work, it doesn't work. That's the the layman's version of irreducible complexity. But what Myers is arguing is once I have the laptop, um, suddenly I have new functionality. My software can do something it couldn't do yesterday. I have a new feature on Facebook today. What's that? Where did it come from? Well, it wasn't a corruption of the data. It was an intentional addition of information that delivered new functionality to the same piece of hardware. And, and that, again, we know how that works, or at least we can say we know probabilistically how the most likely explanation of that would work. Mm -hmm. And we make that kind of conclusion every day, except when we come to the human machine, if we can say that. And then, and then we say, no, well, no, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, so as a third argument, again, I think this one is probably the most complex of the three, but it's the same kind of argument. Uh, he concludes this section with a nice summary again. And, and, and actually, before I say that, let me back up. This, this argument is unique in the sense that he thinks this is the differentiator between a deistic worldview and a creationist worldview. Uh, what he calls theism as opposed to deism. So a Christian God who's involved in the world as opposed to a deistic God. Whereas in the first two arguments, you could say there's no real difference in terms of the plausibility uh, of explanation between a deistic and a theistic system as opposed to a naturalistic system or uh, a pantheistic system or something like that. Here, though, you actually need God continuously, and I don't love this word, but intervening in the process to make things work. You can't just have a front-loaded set of information that then dispenses throughout history to create the world that we have now. What you really need is uh, an intelligent designer who is continuously involved in the world. And he concludes by saying, again, this does not prove God's existence, since superior explanatory power does not constitute deductive certainty. Again, we're doing abductive reasoning. It does show, however, that the natural sciences now provide strong epistemic support for the existence of God as conceived by Judeo-Christian and other traditional theists. Um, yep. So whether it's the origin of the universe, the design of the universe, the design of life, what Meyer is arguing is once you have to try to explain those, you have a strong reason based on the scientific conclusions to say the best explanation is a creator God. Uh, yeah, I think you could apply this. Um, and I, I think this is fair that you could apply this even to more recent natural history that with the first two arguments talking about like prehistory, big bang kind of topics. But here we're talking, if you just go back to whatever the most recent level of caveman was, or is supposed to have been, um, that guy's brain was attuned to do certain things and he did them pretty well hunter or gatherer or whatever he could he could chase down the wildebeest good job uh what is the most likely progression of the information in his dna from that point forward the most likely is that he becomes a stupider less fit 
less well put together machine in terms of information. It should have degraded. Instead, he's now doing complex calculus. <laughs> the caveman brain was not designed to go to the moon. And yet somewhere in the last hundred years, we far outstripped what the natural processes of development should ever allowed us to get to. Like the, the information is not only there, it seems to be in our programming as a human, like this limitless potential that seems to be escalating. That's the whole point of, you know, modern philosophy is things are getting better. They're not supposed to. Information doesn't work that way. Right. Uh, I don't know if that's a fair appraisal of where he was going with that, but it seems to me like just the trajectory of human existence demonstrates one way instead of the other, and that's odd. Yes. Yeah, it is. And uh, I've been reading quite a bit of Ian McGilchrist's stuff lately on brain science and the hmm. differences between the hemispheres. And when you get into that, it, it lends a little bit of the credence to the argument you're making along Meyer's lines of, yeah, so human beings are just existing uh, you know, for thousands of years, and then all of a sudden they develop a prefrontal cortex. No, yeah. that's that's just not the way that this process works. Uh, in fact, the whole history of the process of the universe toward more complexity is really bizarre from a naturalistic standpoint. Uh, you know, entropy is one of those things you learn about in high school and then quickly forget. But entropy should be something that devolves the universe as opposed to evolving, quote unquote, evolving the universe. And we're seeing increased uh, complexity as opposed to what entropy would do, which is just reduce everything back down to its basic components. Yeah, I mean, even just to keep entropy level, I mean, okay, let's let's think of the Earth-Sun system for a minute. If you had enough entropy in the sun, you could offset and say, okay, the, the Earth is going to stay stable. It's not going to degrade into chaos. But we're talking about an increase in complexity, a decrease in entropy on a scale that's really hard to, to figure out. And just how, how does that balance out? I, I, mm -hmm. I don't Well, in the next episode, in our final episode, we're going to come up with, with Meyer's help, the best arguments against what we've just talked about in this podcast episode. We're going to run, we're going to run some um, counterexamples and some defenses up the flagpole, and we'll see what we can do to put a hole in some of these arguments. But from where we stand now, and I think the takeaway for me from this episode is Meyer wants us to see just how live this conversation really is, yeah. just how likely it is, just what a stake Christian theists have in not just saying the Bible teaches me this, although that would be sufficient, but in saying, given what we see in the universe, it sure seems like the Bible is right. Or even, I mean, I would accept this. If you could even say the God hypothesis is as viable as the not God hypothesis, I would take an even playing field and mm -hmm. make my case on Jesus and morality and other things. Just level the playing field. Myers saying it's not even level, it's not even close. But if you could just give us level, we, we would take that. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.